This morning, I want to take time to encourage us as a church to check our spiritual temperature. Uh, there's a very common thermometer out there that's used to uh, check spiritual temperature, and it goes with the four letters WW, what's the rest? JD, right? It's a fairly good thermometer. This morning, I want to argue that there is one that is a little more accurate. Um, on Christmas Eve, we have a thermometer in our house, a meat thermometer. And we had some friends over. And we were cooking a couple of roast, a pork roast and a beef roast. And I, you know, I want, I said to Ruth, I'll cook the meat. Okay, I'll take care of that, which put the fear of God in my wife, understandably. But I was on track, I was doing really good. Um, meat thermometer, when it's at 150, pull it out and it'll finish cooking itself to perfection. So, because of the way that I'm wired, I was late getting to the kitchen by the time the meat was ready to be uh, done. Pork roast got out safely, out of the fire, and was just, just right. The beef, however, had a problem. And that is that when the, the thermometer had an inaccurate reading for a very specific reason. And that is that uh, I went into the kitchen, I said to Ruth, is, is the beef ready? She says, no, I stuck the thermometer in a couple times already and it's, it's not done. I'm like, that seems kind of strange. So, so we'll take it out and put the thermometer in again. And I went over and was doing something else. I turned around, I saw my wife up on the counter trying to shove the thermometer into the meat. I'm like, what's that red thing under the thermometer? And I went over and looked at it and here the, uh, the sleeve was on the meat thermometer still. So we were getting an inaccurate reading. No fault of hers. I should have explained it to her. And I didn't. The meat was done. Anyone who was at my house that night can testify. The beef was done. It was done. What was the problem? The problem was that the thermometer that we were using wasn't giving, giving an accurate read in light of the way that we were using it. And so even though it appeared that it wasn't quite right yet, it was. An inaccurate thermometer spiritually will lead to devastation in your walk with God. You may assume that because you always ask the hypothetical question, what would Jesus do? And that because you ask that question and come up with some type of an answer to that question, that your spiritual temperature is probably doing pretty well. And this morning I want to suggest to you that that thermometer is often for many believers hypothetical. It, it, it tends to fit the kind of the pattern of our age, the relativistic, pluralistic, tolerant view of the Christian life. It kind of muses on, what would Jesus do in this situation? I wonder what His response would be. And this morning, I want to argue that the better thermometer that you ought to apply to your Christian experience to see whether your heart is cold or hot towards God is this question. What did Jesus do? See, I can hypothesize and guess what He would do in my contemporary circumstance, but until I uncover what He actually did, I may be completely missing the mark. Because the answer to the question, what would Jesus do, doesn't necessarily have to come from Scripture. It can be hypothetical. It can be a guesstimation based on what I know about the broader teaching of Christ. But I may still live with a heart that is 
questionably cold or lukewarm. This morning, friend, if you're here and you say, Pastor Tim, I am living a life that is unsatisfying. I know Christ. I've been born again by His grace. I know what it is to be converted. I have consistent evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, but there is some level or degree of dissatisfaction in my life that I can't get past. This morning I'm going to encourage you to check your spiritual temperature because only in the path of obedience to the prompting and directing of the Spirit of God can I become a fully devoted follower of Christ who knows this glorious joy that comes when Christians do what Jesus did. Not when they hypothesize about the Christian life, but when they actually commit to doing everything in their life that they see Jesus doing in His life. My proposition or argument this morning will be this. Every Christian is called to be a follower or a learner of Christ. That is to do what Jesus did. And this morning, I, there are so many things we could say, aren't there? John chapter 20 is almost a rebuke as I begin this sermon because it says, if everything that Jesus had done had been recorded, the, heaven, the heavens of heavens could not contain them. And so this morning, I boil the life of Christ down to four habits of His life that are a means by which we can check His spiritual temperature and see that He was completely in sync with the Father's will. Every Christian is called to do what Jesus did. So let's answer the question, what did Jesus do? Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 17? Gospel of John chapter 17. I'm going to give you four observations so rather than musing about how we answer the question, what would Jesus do this morning, I'm going to call you to observe the Gospels because we know what Jesus did. The question that we'll ask ourselves this morning then as we come to the conclusion is, am I doing what He did in these four key areas of the Christian experience? And by those tests, I can see whether my spiritual temperature is growing colder or whether it's staying warm and hot with a fervent desire to please and honor God. John chapter 17 and verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. If you want to do something interesting, I would encourage you to go to BibleGateway.com and look up the word pray, prayer, or prayed. And follow the life of your Savior through the Gospels. And see if you do not come away from observing the Gospels. Not saying, well, I wonder if Jesus would have prayed in this situation. What would He have done? I think He'll come away saying that at every crucial turning point and on a regular basis in His life, Jesus prayed. One of my favorite reflections on this topic is Matthew 14, 6. After He had sent the disciples away, He went up on a mountainside to pray to seek His Father, to interact with His Father, not to find out what to do next. He already knew what to do. But to interact and to commune with His Father, to find a loving form of obedience that would compel lasting change in His life. He went and He prayed. In Matthew 6, 9, He taught His disciples how to pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Pray like this. And just... Four simple observations about the prayer life of Christ. One was a prayer for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Hard prayer request in a culture of abundance. How many of you sitting here this morning are wondering what you will feed your kids tomorrow morning? 
And yet Jesus said, pray for bread for the day. Pray for protection. Matthew 26, verse 41. Jesus to His disciples on the eve of the crucifixion. Watch and pray so that you don't stumble in the time of temptation. Pray continuously. Paul picks up on this theme. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17. Pray without ceasing. I think in the prayer that Jesus orders His disciples towards, pray, give us our daily bread. Jesus is encouraging His disciples to pray continuously. When He says, Lord, keep us from temptation, He is giving to them a suggested pattern of prayer for the daily Christian experience. We are begging God for His provision, for His protection. We are doing it continually and we are doing it about everything. When I got up this morning, I saw laying on the floor a book that my wife is reading. It's called In Everything by Prayer. In Everything by Prayer. Looked at that title and said, I'm going to talk about that this morning. Do I do that? Do I pray about everything? It's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 4.6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and request, bring your desires to God. Folks, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to know if you have the heart of Christ, ask yourself this question. Take this spiritual thermometer and put it under your tongue. Do you pray? I am conscious of the fact that the ministry of my Savior began with prayer and ended with fervent prayer. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. When He got there, what did He do? You know what the Word of God says? He prayed at the outset of His ministry for 40 days. Folks, can I make a suggestion? If Jesus Christ, the Son of God in flesh, needed to pray in preparation for His life experience, for the glory of His Father, then perhaps Tim Hoff needs to learn to pray. Perhaps each of us in the chapel family need to recover the incredible value of communicating with the Father. Not necessarily so that we understand, but so that we are changed and committed to living a life that is all out, full on for His glory. It is what He did. And I believe it is why His disciples came to Him and said, Lord, would You teach us to pray? And my guess is that they were praying men but that when they saw the prayer life of Christ, they felt weak and anemic in their pursuit of God. And they come to Him and say, Lord, would You teach us to pray? His ministry begins with prayer. His ministry ends with prayer. So powerfully revealed in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 1 of John 18, when He had finished praying, He left with His disciples and went to Gethsemane where He would offer Himself His life as a sacrifice for your sin. All of His life punctuated with persistent prayer. I bring you this question this morning. Apart from serious calamity in your life, when is the last time that you, that I, spent a serious season in prayer? When is the last time that I spent, I don't mean the prayer uttered in the car quickly, I don't mean the prayer uttered at dinner, I mean a serious season of desperate dependence upon God, seeking His glory in your life circumstances. Is prayer characteristic of our lives? Do we capture God-given opportunities to seek His face? 
Am I willing to adjust my schedule to make it a little less busy so that I can cultivate a habit of prayer? Because I can't look at the life of Christ without saying He had a habit of prayer. He loved to pray. This morning as a church family, I want to encourage us to open our hearts to God and say, God, cause us to be a people of prayer. Cause us to have lives that are punctuated with persistent prayer for provision, for protection, for power. So that God might begin to work mightily in our church as He blesses our church. This fear comes over me. I woke up last night just with this sense of being overwhelmed, but also saying, God, would you work through us? And you take it, this church outside the realm of my personal capacity, which it has been pretty much from the beginning, would you help us so that we can capture this opportunity that you're giving us to see your glory done in our church? And folks, I believe this it will not happen apart from a prayer-filled pastor and apart from a prayer-filled church. May God help us to be able to check our spiritual temperature next January and say, we pray more than we did before. A second test that we can apply to our lives is found in John chapter 13. If you turn back a few pages, just a quick observation on a text that you could spend literally weeks in in preaching. John chapter 13, looking at the life of the Savior. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. He had become, in his physical sense, completely aware of who he was. That he was God in flesh. An amazing thought to me. Born as an infant. Learning as he reads the scriptures who he is. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Became aware of who he was. And once he had come to the place where he fully understood the full intent of the Father's will that He had come as the Messiah, who one day would indeed reign and rule on the earth to the glory of His Father, had come this time to practice an act of complete sacrificial abandonment and sacrifice for His Father. Knowing that everything had been put into His hands and that He was returning to God, what happens? He's not puffed up with the position, no. He gets up, from the meal and took off his outer clothing, the robe, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What was Jesus like? As I study and observe the life of Christ, I see someone who is characterized by a love for people that dictates everything that he does. A love so profound that on this night, and if you're not familiar with the flow of the Gospel of John, from chapter 12 through the end of the book, you were in the last week of Christ's life. This is the eve of His crucifixion. Chapter 12 covers the previous six days. Or actually, I should say really four days, Palm Sunday. This is Thursday, eve of crucifixion. The Savior knowing completely who He is, fully comprehending that He is God in flesh and that everything is under His authority and power. He humbles Himself and in a loving act of service, yields Himself to the needs of His disciples. Jesus loved people. His love for people was always a, an active love, never a static love. Folks, listen. 
It is one thing for me to say I love people and that spiritually in that regard compared to Christ, I'm doing fine. The question is not, do you love people? The question is, your li- is, is your life characterized by acts of selfless love? Can you identify in your life times when you yield your personal will to the will of God? When you make adjustments in your schedule so that the needs of those that have been unmet are met through you as God's instrument. You see, that's the life of the Savior. He lived a life of complete, selfless abandonment to do the will of His Father and left a legacy. A legacy that we can look at in this text. We can observe what Jesus did and we can say He was a man who loved people. Look at verses 12 and 13, if you will. When He had finished washing their feet, He put on His clothes and returned to His place. And that that phrase is what jumped out to me this morning when I was rereading this text. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. You know what his place was? Head of the table. His place was the position of Lord and Master. And he's the one from that place that got up and washed the feet of unwilling disciples. Who a couple days previous to this, as they were moving towards Palm Sunday, were arguing about which one was greatest in the kingdom. For them. For them. He loved. Folks, it's easy to love people that deserve to be loved, isn't it? It's easy to love your own. The question isn't, do I love my own family? That's natural. Ought to be profoundly natural. The question is, do I love the unlovely? Do I love people who can reciprocate not at all? Who cannot respond to my sacrifice, to my giving, to my service? Do I love them? This morning I want to encourage you, peruse your life. Just think through your life. Ask yourself the question, who's the person that can't reciprocate that I am involving myself in their life in a way that they can never give back? Because I want to love like Christ loved. Folks, I want to tell you, this is hard for me. It's hard. It's hard to cultivate a life that invests without expecting a return. It's hard. It's hard at work to go the extra mile when you know nobody will ever notice and it won't make any impact on your future professional path. It's hard then, isn't it? To do what no one will ever see. To do what no one will ever care about because it was needed. But that's the life of Christ. His love was so amazing in sharing the gospel that in John chapter 4, he meets up with a woman at the well and loves her with the gospel so much that she stops him and says, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? His response, because I have something that you desperately need and that you can't find on your own. I have come to serve you by meeting your greatest need. Folks, ask the question, who's the person in your life that you are committed to serving who cannot reciprocate? but who desperately needs the attention that you can give. That's what the Savior did. A life characterized by love that was so special and so pronounced that in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes to the funeral of Lazarus, the Jewish pagan observers, who did not accept Him as the Messiah, watched His interaction with the Savior. And here was their observation. John 11.35, we all know the verse, shortest one in the Bible. When I was a kid, we used to say, I know a verse. Jesus 
wept. But folks, think about this. That short verse that describes the Savior, Jesus, the weeper, captures the heart of the Jewish audience and they look at Him and say, Behold how much He loved Him. Is my love observable? Is it pronounced and regular enough that the watching world around me who is looking for someone who is different can see someone, a man who loves in a way that is unusual? Because that is clearly how the Savior expressed His love. John chapter 13 and verse 1, an astonishing statement. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for Him to leave this world and to go to His Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He showed them now the full extent of His love. If you have the New American Standard, it says this. And at the bottom of the NIV, it also says it. He loved them to the last, to the last one, to the last moment. For who? Look, folks, please. The disciples were a difficult group of men. They weren't pleasant to be around. They were like your children are in their worst moment. Self-centered. I was there first. I had it first. Okay, the part that you look at and you say, I don't like that in my kids. That's the disciples. Having done the will of His Father, He loved them to the end. Here's the question. Are you like Him? Do you love like Him? Does your sharing of the Gospel communicate to the world around you that you love them like Jesus loves them? Can I ask you this question? I don't mean to probe too deeply. But can you remember the last time that you shared the greatest news that there is to share? Can you consciously think of the last time that you took a track containing the Word of God, or you took the Word of God and presented it to someone that you know does not know the Savior, and you took the risk of loving people that so desperately need to be loved with an act of love that shares the greatest message. When was the last time that you changed your schedule, your routine, to take time to serve men, your wife? You stepped out of your busyness and said, honey, I want to serve you. I'm not just going to tell you I love you. I'm going to show you that I love you. Someone needy in your life that you can say, Pastor Tim, I can think back. And I had such great joy when I loved that person who was in need. Jesus prayed regularly. Jesus loved people. Third test this morning from the Gospel of John. It's found in John chapter 19. I'd like you to turn ahead there with me if you would. John chapter 19. The third test of the heart of Christ that reveals who He is is found in His response to the temptations that Satan gives Him. Satan comes three times and Jesus' response is what? It is written. Meaning this, Satan, your temptations are fascinating. They are powerful. They are compelling. But it is written. How did Jesus Christ fight off the temptations of the evil one? Here's how he did it. He lived a life of complete and unconditional obedience to the will of his Father. The question he was always asking is, what does the Scripture say? Folks, 
That's a question you can test your life with. It's better than the hypothetical. And it's the only way that you can live a life of committed obedience to Christ. You have to know what the Scripture says about each and every situation that you find yourself entering into. Luke chapter 18, and I just want to read this text for you. If you just listen along, if you can get there quickly, Luke 18, 31. Jesus is predicting His death. He's predicting His full obedience to the will of the Father. In verse 31, He says this, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be, listen to this, handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. That's the kind of obedience that Christ was committed to. You say, Pastor Tim, what is that? That is unconditional, sacrificial obedience. And folks, please understand this. Nothing short of complete obedience is obedience. My attempts at half-hearted obedience are not obedience. They're conditional. Jesus offered to His Father a degree of, a level of obedience that is in fact stunning. Look in John chapter 19 now. I just want you to see this borne out in another passage. This unconditional level of obedience. Verse 28. It says, Later knowing that all was now completed. Okay, everything in reference to Christ apart from His passion has now been done. He stands with His toes on the threshold of His passion. And He has perfectly fulfilled the will of His Father knowing that all was now completed and so that the Scripture may have been fulfilled. And this follows now the crucifixion in chapters 18 and 19, the trials of Christ. We come in chapter 19 to the final phase of the crucifixion experience it leads up to the words if you look down at verse 30 it is finished so he has now been on the cross for some uh, six hours knowing now that everything was completed and this phrase just just listen to what this says so that the scripture would be fulfilled okay everything is done one thing needs to happen And it will bring about the final act of pain and suffering as a sponge of vinegar is shoved into his broken lips. Was it necessary? I mean, the blood has been shed on the cross, the perfect payment for sin. And then this editorial comment, so that all of the Father's will would be done. And you know the words that Jesus cries out. Jesus said, I thirst a jar of wine vinegar was there so they soaked the sponge in it and put the sponge on the stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips I think did that pay for my sin did that in any way complete his passion no no but it was so that all of the father's will would be done that Jesus Christ did that no just think to yourself How reluctant we are to obey God completely. Just think in your life of that area that God has been convicting you to deal with. That He wants you to address. And you're fighting Him. Hear the words of the Savior. After the will of the Father is completely done. Does that accent point really matter? It mattered to the Savior. So that everything said about Him would be fulfilled. Why? 
so that one day you and I in the 21st century could look back and see that He fulfilled everything that was written about Him. So that we could have a complete and utter confidence in the redemption that He purchased through His blood and His suffering. That's why. So that I could point at every fulfillment of Scripture beyond question and say Jesus did that and He did that and He did that. So that His obedience to the Father might be perfect and unconditional. And that His righteous life might be offered as the payment for my sin and for yours. My attention is drawn back to John chapter 4. And just would you turn there with me real quickly. John chapter 4. This is when Jesus is sharing the gospel with the woman at the well. There's an interesting sidelight in parentheses. Verse 8, you'll notice in most translations, is parenthetical. It's in parentheses. Jesus is preparing to meet with the woman. Verse 7, he says, will you give me a drink? And then the parentheses tell you where the disciples are during this entire discussion. It says, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Or these are men that had their priorities right. Okay? First get satisfied, then share. Okay? So they're gone, and Jesus is now left at this well, solitary, alone with this woman. He engages her in a discussion about the glory of His Father. About how He can bring true, lasting satisfaction, which was, is an appeal all the way back to Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Water that brings life that is without cost. That's the message He's communicating to this woman. And ultimately He's going to say to you, I who speak to you, I'm that water. I'm that living water. Fast forward a little bit. The woman is so astonished at the love of Christ and at the predictive nature of His words and how He can look back into her life and know everything, even though she never met Him before. And she rushes into town to tell everybody, I've met a man who told me everything I did and I never met him before. He knows everything about me. And she's in a panic, but gloriously in a panic. She begs the crowd to come. The disciples come back in the meantime. And I want you to notice how the text says this. Verse 31. Now imagine, people are coming out of town, verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. You must be starving by now. Eat something. I've never had this experience that Jesus has here, where he's working and he, he's hungry, but he doesn't know it. I would love to have that experience, to be starving and not know it. That's what happens here. Look at verse 32. It says, but he said to them, and listen to this, Rabbi, have something. it's been all day. You haven't had something to eat. You must be starving. I love his response because this is the heart of Christ. He says, disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Can a man go this many hours without eating something? Is that possible? And notice what the Savior says. My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Not just to do it. And to finish His work. Folks, would you... I don't know if this is a spiritual gift I want. To be hungry and not know that I'm hungry. I love food. But He says my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. I didn't recognize that I was hungry because my joy and satisfaction in serving my Father had blinded me to my temporary needs. Oh, I, just, I read that and I'm like, God, what a place. What a place to live where our satisfaction in God is so high that we didn't know the time had passed. And most of us have had that experience doing some kind of project, working on something that had your total attention. And you were working. Somebody says, oh, do you know what time it is? You're like, oh, I, I, 
I had no idea that much time had passed. Like all you guys when you're in college studying, right? Never look at the watch. It's like, wow, I didn't know that much time had passed. The Savior is serving, is loving so much, so passionately, that he doesn't realize that time has passed. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to a wedding reception at the Stroudmore Inn. If anybody ever invites you to a wedding, even if you don't like them, go. Okay? The food will blunt all of your negative feelings towards the individuals. It will actually overcome it and cause you to love them. That's what I've experienced. They have a list of 138 appetizers that they serve. At the wedding I was at, the bride and groom had picked 40. Only 40. To my disappointment. I got done eating appetizers. And I ate a lot. Because I have that capacity. The last thing they served was pork dumplings. Pork wrapped in dough and then you dipped it in the sauce. And it was, it was absolutely amazing. And we sat down for the prime rib dinner. I have never sat before prime rib and not wanted it. But I was so satisfied from what came before that what normally is very appealing to me, probably even chocolate wouldn't have worked that day. I was so full. You know the verse in, 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 in the Proverbs where it says, to the hungry soul, even the bitter thing is sweet, but, to, but the full soul even hates honey? Would we pray this year, God, give me such delight in you, in serving you in this unconditional level and degree of obedience that I am so fully devoted that the service of you, the 40 parts of the appetizer, caused me to become blind to the pleasures of this life. That they, for some reason, no longer have an appeal. Folks, that is a glorious place to be. I want obedience to God so much, Jesus is saying, that I was unaware of my temporary need. I was unaware of the allure of this world because it was focused, disciples. The next verse is what he says. Look at the harvest. What's happening? The Samaritans are coming out of the city. Why? Because they've heard that there is a Savior. And the disciple says to them, forget the food. Look at that. Look at the people coming because they heard the truth who are thirsty, who when they taste Christ will know full satisfaction. Folks, let that truth, that a fully devoted life of unconditional sacrificial obedience will be attractive to a lost world around you. You want to know how to get the attention of people in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Live a life of fully devoted sacrifice to Christ unconditionally. Let them see a Christian who really means it. Because I am convinced that the world around us sees Christians who are deeply affected by the allure of this world, the temporary pleasures. We are far too overcommitted to things that will not matter on our deathbed and when we stand before the Savior. We need to make an adjustment. We need to stick the thermometer in our mouth and say, am I characterized by complete and unconditional obedience? Because that is what the Savior was like. I read, this, I read this account of Jesus and I say, God, that's the kind of joy that I would like to know. I would like to know the kind of joy that blinds me to the appeal of the things of this world that causes me to know that my Savior is enough. He is enough. The last thought I want to just leave you with real quickly is from John chapter 12, verses 23 to 28. John 12, verses 23 to 28. You have to ask yourself the question, if I'm going to live a life of sacrificial obedience, if I'm going to love people that can't reciprocate that love to me, if I'm going to sacrifice time to pray, why? 
Why? You're sitting there saying, Pastor Tim, that's, that's beautiful. It's nice stuff. But why? Why should I do that? What would motivate that kind of sacrifice of time and effort? What would do that? What, here's the question, or the answer to the question is this. If you know what caused the Savior to give up His life, you know the answer to the question. If you know why Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, you know the answer to the question. You know what motivates fervent Christian living. John 12, verse 23. The Word of God says this. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We see there's a difference in perspective here, isn't there? The one who lives for what they can get out of this life lives a life that falls short of true joy, contentment, and happiness. Whoever serves me must follow me. They must do what Jesus did. Not speculate about what He might have done. Do what He did. Follow Him. And He says, where I am, my servant will also be. What is He talking about? Future. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then He flips it back to His personal experience prior to the crucifixion. Now is my heart troubled. The word literally means to be disturbed, to shudder within. Why? Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Folks, listen to this. Listen. The cross caused the Savior to shudder. To be troubled to the very core of His being. To want to avoid it. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He looks right at the Passion, what does He say? Father, let this cup pass. In His flesh, He wanted what you and I want all the time. You know what we want? Self-preservation and happiness. I want to avoid pain. That's why I don't go for certain medical exams that my mom is begging me to go for. I want to avoid any possibility of pain. Even when it requires foolishness and blindness on my part. I just want to avoid it. The Savior wanted to avoid what Tim Hoff wants to avoid. And he begged for release. What you want to avoid in your life, he wanted to avoid. But what does he say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not what I want what you want. Folks, here's what I believe. I believe that is the key to freedom in your life. I believe the key to freedom from self-centeredness is a desire, and this is my last point, it is a desire to seek the Father's glory in all things, at all times, at all costs. Jesus is very clear about this call and his desire in response to the call is very clear in John 17 
And verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then notice what happens next in the text. I just love this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified my name, and son, through your sacrifice, I will glorify it again. And every believer in this room, here is the greatest privilege in the Christian experience, to do acts that glorify God. And to know that when the day is done, and you lay your head down on the pillow, you hear from heaven through the voice of the Spirit in your heart, you are my beloved son. You are my precious blood-bought daughter. In you I am pleased. Because today you did my will. And folks, the only motivation that I can find that is consistent in my Christian life is not the benefits of Christian living. It's the glory of God. It's the only consistent motivator for fervent prayer. You know why? Because my needs come and go. And if my prayer life is based on my needs, guess what? There are times that I pray more fervently because I have more needs. But when life is going well and it's not about the glory of God, I pray less. I'll love more if it's about the glory of God. Because there are days, let me reverse this for safety reasons, there are days that I don't deserve my wife's love. And she loves me anyhow. You know why? Because she wants the glory of God. Jesus said that he was committed to doing his Father's will because he wanted his Father's name to be glorified above all things. John 17, verse 1. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given to him. Now, is, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. You say, Pastor Tim, how do I glorify and honor God above all things in my life and have the joy of knowing that he is being glorified in my life? Here's the simple answer. Do what Jesus did. Don't hypothesize, don't speculate, don't listen to what the latest journalist is saying in newspapers or on TV or historical studies, don't do that. Go and find out what he did in the Gospels and go and do it. And I promise you this, you have greater joy in your life. Your spiritual temperature will read just right. If you choose to sacrificially love and honor and serve the Savior. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, the first act of obedience that you owe to God is found in John chapter 6 and verse 29. It says, the work of God is this. Believe in the one whom He has sent. If you've never trusted Christ, this is the will of God for you. That you would come to the cross today saying, God, I admit that I do not do what Jesus did my life is characterized by personal desires and rebellion. But I want to know Christ personally in a way that changes the direction of my life. And if you come to Him and say, Lord Jesus, today I believe that You paid the price for my sin and I want You to come into my heart and be my Savior, He will, by His grace, change your life forever. Christian, ask yourself this question this morning. Do you, do I, do 
what Jesus did. Can I make one simple suggestion as we close this morning? The best way to begin that is to start doing what you already know to be true. Start doing what you already know. People are saying, oh, just what should I do, Pastor? What should I do? Start doing what you already know that Jesus did. And let God begin to bless in your life. Some of you need to follow the Savior in this year in the waters of baptism because that's what Jesus did. Some of you need to begin to practice selfless acts of service to your mate, to a friend, to a neighbor that you don't like. Some of you need to begin by verbalizing the gospel that you have been living but you need to know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Some of you this year need to engage in vital relationships because that's what Jesus did. He chose 12 and was with them. Some of you, some of us, need to cultivate a more intense daily routine in the Word and in prayer. Folks, I don't know what your issue is today, but I want to encourage you as we start this year to make a commitment to do what Jesus did so that the Father can be glorified in your life and in mine. Our Father, as we close this morning...